You're listening to Intelligent Data, a podcast by Proficient. Proficient is a global digital consultancy that's transforming how the world's biggest brands connect with customers and grow their businesses. Throughout this series, you'll learn how valuable data is today and how it can transform your business. And now here's our host, Arvind Morali, Data Chief Strategist and Principal at Proficient. Wow. That was quite the show with Bruno Aziza, head of data and analytics with Google Cloud. We talked about the five macro trends in the data and analytics space and the three rules that supports those trends, including openness to architecture, community, and ecosystem. In addition, we discussed the importance of culture to be a data-driven organization. Bruno referred to an important macro trend, which may surprise you to look for if you're a CDO towards the end of the show. There were so many golden nuggets in this podcast, it is hard for me to highlight them. Enjoy and take a listen. It is my honor to talk to Bruno Aziza in our show today. Bruno is the head of data and analytics with Google Cloud. He is an industry leader in data and analytics and constantly shows up in many events and conferences talking about the future state and power of data-driven organizations. One of my favorite sound bites he offers is a podcast with Bernard Marr every quarter, I believe, in which Bruno and Bernard discuss the now, new, and the next strategy. Bruno, welcome to the Intelligent Data Podcast. Thanks for having me, Arvind. Bruno, would you mind introducing yourself and what you do? There's way too much out there. Maybe if you can condense it to two to three minutes. Absolutely. So hi, everyone. I'm Bruno Ziza. I hope that uh, I know many of you, or at least I get to meet many of you in the audience. I am French, so if you're a little bit of an accent, that's where it's coming from. I've been in the U.S. now for 20 years. You can find me easily online because my last name reads forward and backwards the same way. So A-Z-I-Z-A. It's what they call a palindrome. I have been in the industry forever. <laughs> and the only thing I've been working on for the last 25 years or so has been analytics. So I worked at Business Objects early on. I worked at Microsoft. I helped launch three data analytics startups. I worked at Oracle and now I'm at Google. So I've had kind of the exposure of small, medium, and large organizations in, in the world of data and analytics. And then I think, as you said earlier, I try to spend as much time as I can with customers to understand customer trends. And so that leads me to writing about them. For the last 10 years, I've been uh, authoring a column on Forbes on data analytics and AI. I have a monthly check-in point with Bernard. So it's quarterly. It probably feels quarterly to you because of COVID and <laughs> the time just kind of stretches, but it's monthly. And then every Sunday, I do a top five of data analytics uh, topics uh, on my LinkedIn feed. So just to stay in touch with the community and try to kind of help share the insights that we're learning from customers and community members, because the industry is moving really, really fast. I feel like I'm vindicated at, from the beginning of my career, data and databases didn't seem to matter much, but now that's the only thing that people are talking about. So it's a super hot space and I'm excited about it. It seems like I can, just breaking down what you said about your experience itself as a podcast on its own. (laughs) I am that old. You're right. (laughs) You live in San Francisco, right? That's correct. I was born in the south of France, moved to the Silicon Valley. That's when I was with a startup that was bought and then worked for Business Objects, the company went IPO and so forth. And I moved up to Seattle. I've only lived on the West Coast. And now I'm back in the Silicon Valley. I came back after seven years at Microsoft to start a couple of startups. And so that's kind of been my journey. That's fantastic. Well, since you are talking quite a bit of the future state of data and AI, let's talk about that. What's up in the world of data and AI currently? 
There is a lot going on and it's accelerating. I think there's a few trends we can talk about. The, the first one that everybody's talking about now is, is people modernizing to the cloud. Every company is thinking about what their multi-cloud strategy is. I wrote last month in Forbes about the fact that 92% of folks have a multi-cloud strategy and the average company uses two or more clouds. What that means is they are, of course, making their own bet across multiple clouds themselves, but because they're starting to share data with other companies and they're creating an ecosystem around themselves, they're having to think about, okay, my now my data is on-prem, it's in the cloud and multiple clouds. So that's a huge deal and it's occupying a lot of conversations with chief data officers. The second trend is governance. And I know we'll talk about this today. 60% of leaders look at data governance and they say they're in any level of underdevelopment. So governance is a big issue. Third trend is convergence. AI plus BI, data warehousing plus data lake. I know we'll talk about this later about that, but that's also a big, big trend. And then finally, maybe my favorite two trends, real time. Uh, the, the fact that you cannot afford to have all data, and by all data, I mean data that's more than an hour old. And then, of course, the proliferation of applications, because we've gone from a world where people are used to packaged applications that are vertically integrated to now anyone being able to build an application using microservices. And so that's creating lots and lots of purpose-built applications that sometimes are built by business users. And so it's an interesting trend as well. It's creating a lot of data, of course, and creating a lot of opportunities, but also a lot of issues if you don't know how to manage Absolutely. So let me just summarize. There's a lot of trends here, but you've covered five trends. Modernizing to the cloud. So you touch base on the multi-cloud strategy, data governance, convergence of, I'm going to use the word technology, but you can also call it capability. So AI tools becoming BI and vice versa, data warehouse becoming data lake, or now the new cool term is data lake house. Then you touched up on real time. This is how fast you can get to data and how can you create insights all of this driving business real-time as well. And last but not the least, purpose-built applications. Did I cover those five trends? You nailed it. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, let's kind of unpack this a little bit, right? You obviously work for Google. And how do you see the, I'm going to use the word mega platforms, right? These are the massive end-to-end scalable platforms. How do they support these five trends? Are they out there building microservices and what you call the mesh architecture end-to-end supporting these trends? What's happening there? You know, I can't talk for the other companies, but I could tell you for why I'm excited to be at Google in 2021 is we have the opportunity to support these trends in a way that's truly differentiated. And certainly we see the reaction from customers has really been quite amazing. And so I think there's a few principles in this new era of, of data that you really have to think hard when you're building at a company or when you're partnering with a technology partner. The first one is this idea of having values around openness. And so this is a really important value because if you're a chief data officer out there, you certainly do not want to go into a world where you're going to be locked into one way of thinking, one way of storing, and really kind of, even though the solutions might be good, they might not be most appropriate for your use case. So this idea of being open is across multiple dimensions, open to multiple clouds. So look for vendors that meet you where your data is at today. Moving data around is rarely a good idea. So this is openness of architecture, sorry, not open data initiatives. This is openness of architecture itself. That's right. Because data grows at exponential speed and you know, to some extent, even if you're running a very large organization today, and to some extent, you don't have control over where the data is going to be stored when you're trying to kind of build your analytics solutions. And so I think it's important to have an infrastructure architecture that is open, open to multiple clouds and open to choice. 
The second thing is open to the rest of the community. A lot of innovation that I see today actually starts in the open source community. And so having a partner that has roots in that, respects that, and allows you as an organization to manage that at a planet scale level, I think is really important. And then finally, the third notion of openness is this idea of open to the ecosystem, commercial solutions that are out there. I mean, a lot of the work that we do is making sure that we're able to provide a path to our partners to onboard them to our platform and enable their customers to see really no disruption as they're onboarding. And so this first dimension of open, I think, is a modern dimension that, you know, in the past was just really hard because you were on-prem and the vendors were really kind of trying to be the end-to-end answer to it. Now we've gone to a world where it's an ecosystem. If you're not open, you're going to limit your potential. I have three key principles. That's my first one here, but I could talk forever about them. So let me pause there and see if that makes sense. It absolutely does. So openness to architecture, openness to community, and openness to ecosystem. I want to unpack this a little bit. I think there's a lot here kind of crammed in, right? So let me see if I can get you to talk a little bit more. Openness to architecture. When I think about modern data platforms, there is a data strategy behind it. It can do it all it can have unlimited storage and compute potentials. It's AI driven. There's a lot of this, not one specific platform, but any platform, right? All of these are converging. So what is this modern data architecture? Maybe if you can give us two to three bullet pointed approaches. Yeah. So there are a few kind of um, paradigm shifts. I hate to use that word because it sounds like a big word, but there are a few things that are changing in the way you think about managing data today. Here's a very simple one. In the olden days, We thought as data professionals that we could anticipate what our analysts would ask and we would kind of limit the information that we would store and we'd say, you know, know, I know that you're going to ask, Arvin, you're going to ask questions about the last year. And so I'm going to take that data, aggregate it for you, and I'm going to kind of prepare the information, prepackage it for you so you can consume it faster. And now why did we come to that realization is really economically, it wasn't really feasible to store in limited amount of data. Two, performance of the querying tools were really, you know, pretty bad. And so we wanted to make sure people got the answer to the data they had in a timely fashion. Now these things don't really matter anymore. Storage, as the cost of storage has gone down dramatically, the business intelligence and application tools now with query acceleration and multiple uh, types of technologies around memory, cache, and so forth. Now performance, of course, you can query a large amount of data at a very large scale and return results really fast. And so what this means is that you as a data professional, you should not be throwing data away ever. And the other value of it is that you're going to be able to find insights in that data down the road, you know, things you might not have been able to anticipate. So when you think about modern data architecture, that is the first pillar is never throw data away. That's a really important principle. Then there is, of course, the interface and how people are going to consume information. The personas that are involved now in the value chain for data consumption are a little different. You know, in the past, you had a database administrator and maybe you had a business intelligence analyst, and then they would package on a weekly basis a set of reports and deliver it to the business users. Well, that process takes a week, maybe it takes two weeks. That's no longer applicable, right? So now you have business users that just came out of business school and maybe they have taken a class on data science or Maybe for their own uh, sake, they are just they just love data and they can build their own applications. And so now the, the architecture that you have needs to be able to be friendly to that movement. So me as a product manager tomorrow, I can build an application just self-serving myself to the infrastructure you've made available in a secure manner. 
That's really a disruption, I think, for a lot of organizations. It's what we call basically bringing framework and freedom, right? So bringing freedom of access, freedom of development within a framework so you have true governance across what data is applicable, what data is really appropriate for certain people to see. Freedom within the framework. This is coming a lot from the overused term digital transformation, right? Where you focus on the Amazon-like buying experience, one, two, three, click. And then now you're building that same capability in data technologies, data and analytic technologies, so that it's easy to use. And more importantly, you can tell a story with data just clicking buttons, if you will, right? That's right. And this idea of data storytelling is also important because people have realized that delivering tables and you know spreadsheets to executives and, and hoping that they'll make a decision is really not really worked out. And the reason for that is because we're not logical machines that make decisions. We're emotional machines that make decisions as we connect with the data. And so that's also a trend that people need to watch out for is that connect with the executives connect with the audience that you're trying to help make the decision because a lot of the decision making is actually emotional. And so that's an important skill set. And certainly if your organization today does not have this level of agility and flexibility, you're going to be stuck. The other piece that I think is really important for people to consider is intelligence. So we talk a lot about artificial intelligence and so forth, but you really want to make sure that you have machine learning built into the existing capability. Today, a lot of organizations are adding machine learning kind of like the last mile. And, you know, that's a good way to do it. It's not the best way to do it. So you want to look at where is machine learning kind of infused in about every step of my process. And then finally, the, the last step is flexibility. You know, today you want to be able to store data in a certain way because it applies to your use case. So you want to be able to find vendors that give you the flexibility to build a data lake with the same platform that they allow you to build a data warehouse. And as much as we want these two things to be the same, there are going to be a lot of use cases where they're not. Data lakes are great for exploration. They're great for unstructured data. And data warehouses are great for structured questions, structured data, and so forth. And so you want to watch out for the vendors that are going to drive you down a path to their solution. It's kind of like, uh, I call this the law of the instrument where, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Don't fall for that. You know, the vendors are going to try to get you to their vision, their path, because that's what they have to sell you. But you have to first start with the business value and the use case you're trying to enable. And then from that, choose the vendor. I think you said that even at the beginning of the call, right? Don't just move data around. Go look for data where it's getting created, whether it's in the edge, on-prem, or cloud, and have your insights generated there. That's the whole point of this flexibility, right? It doesn't matter if you're on-prem or cloud or both, hybrid, if you will, right? That's right. You know, we, we used to say you move the data to where the user was. And, and I think what we're realizing is there's computing at the edge, there's decision making at the end. You want to move the processing where the data is. Moving the data is very expensive. It's very slow and it's risky. And so you want to find yourself in situations where you don't have to do that as much. I like it. So you've outlined five points on the openness of architecture, I think. The first one, I'm going to use the word analyst of the future, which is basically, you know, folks are moving away from traditional descriptive analytics to a more predictive and prescriptive insights. The second point is never throw away data. That's very important. You said the user experience should be seamless, meaning you should be thinking about clicking buttons and less about, oh, I need to go build this complicated SQL query. And that takes me about two weeks. And by the time you build it, your insights are already moved on to the next thing, right? You got to go do something else. And you mentioned the emotional attachment of data storytelling because we're all human beings after all. And then the point there is 
not only are we emotional, but if there is a way that the tool can have a machine learning intelligence embedded within it, what if it can recommend you a hierarchy or a pattern or something like that, a fuzzy logic pattern? So you as a human can take a decision there, but don't waste your time building that decision making. Let the tool recommend something for you, right? Let the platform recommend something for you. And the last but not the least is the flexibility. Did I get that right? I think you got that absolutely right. You know, the, the other thing I'd add about machine learning and the way to think about it, is you, I talked to a lot of chief data officers that think about, okay, well, what does my architecture need to look like? And where they land is centralization of data, decentralization of analytics. And by that, I mean, with the data being all in one place, now you can apply artificial intelligence to create better experiences. It's kind of like the equivalent of your Spotify or your Netflix. If I have all the lookalike information, now I can help you discover something about you that you don't know about yourself. That's really the nirvana of data analytics is not telling someone that something they don't know, but even more powerful, tell them something about themselves that they don't know. And now you've really connected the power of the platform, the breadth of all the data that looks like this individual, and you've made it very personal to that person so they can connect emotionally with it and they can actually act on it, right? How many movies did you discover thanks to Netflix recommendation engine? How many songs have you discovered thanks to Spotify that you would have never discovered uh, otherwise? Okay, so we talked about the openness of architecture. Let's go to the macro factor of openness of community. I wrote an article in in Forbes recently, and, and the challenge about this whole approach is data marketplace is increasingly becoming relevant. It's important for us, right? When you say openness to community, are you talking about that data marketplace approach? Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about a few dimensions. I think the first one is the openness to the, the community in, in its innovation. So open source was what I was referring to earlier is this idea that there's a ton of innovation in open source. And if today you chief data officer and you don't have a way to easily bring in that innovation into your platform, you're going to have a few issues. One, you're not going to get the best and the brightest to join because they're looking for that. And then secondly, you're going to miss out on innovation that the community is supporting, which you ultimately want to do that. So that's certainly one, and that's around software development and talent. Now, what you're talking about in terms of data sharing, data exchange, I also think is extremely relevant because we know, you know, there's a survey recently in MIT that 92% of executives wish their organization could share data effectively and reliably that's not from within their walls, so external data sources. And I think, you know, this concept of data sharing has been in existence for a long time, but I don't think that we've been able to crack this effectively. And so I think what we'll see in the next few years here is that vendors are going to come up with much better ways to make the experience of sharing data and sharing data solutions a lot more fluid and a lot more secure. See, that's the problem today is that you know, if I use any of the data exchanges that are available today, now my first question is going to be, okay, well, how is the data managed? What policies apply to it? What happens once I turn off that exchange and so forth? And so there's a lot of questions still on how can we effectively share data to make the reality a lot more visible. The, the problem that's happening today that I think is very relevant with data sharing is at your company today, you might have access to, let's say, I'm going to be generous, 60% of the data that your company creates. But that is probably 5% of the data that actually truly represents reality. If you're a retailer, you might have your inventory, but you don't have information that actually conditions for people to come to your store, weather information, so forth. So you think about completing the picture. There's so much data and there's so much that you can bring in into the analysis so you can get a clear picture of reality that today is just really, really hard to accomplish. But I think with the new modern architecture will be solved by organizations in the, in the community. 
I like this because you gave one tangible example, but I think this data sharing as it relates to the community becomes important. Think about the healthcare situation where payers and providers are equally benefited by having some kind of a safe data sharing mechanism, right? Mayo Clinic launched their clinical data platform a while ago, and boy, was that a very important invention of the healthcare world. Modernizing data sharing, understanding patient outcome, understanding adverse effects. Now pivot to what you said, Bruno, which is if you take the retail setting, that's supply chain. Knowing what my inventory looks like for a particular store and the ability to share that data back to my vendors or suppliers and saying, hey, I need these tissues or I need milk by this time because my store is going to run out of it. And ability to share it safely and securely across network and have the suppliers share that with their kind of farmers, if you will, that's an ecosystem of data sharing right there, which at the end of the day, it gives back to the customer like you and I who'll go and shop milk on time so they can always prepare for it, right? Absolutely. The key word you use here, which I think is really something for people to absorb, is ecosystem. You know, we have really moved from a world where you had to control the data, you had to think about it on premise within the walls. And it was really kind of, even though it felt like a, a safe way to think about the problem, it's a reducive equation because you're having access to such a small amount of the data that is a representation of reality. With modern architectures, we're now able to project in a secure and governed manner the world, the way it is documented. And so if you're now able to ingest that and observe it, understand, apply artificial intelligence on top of it, now really you're going to have a better path to innovation and create better and richer experiences for your customers and better experiences for your employees. You know, often we talk about we want this platform because it's cheaper, faster, stronger, and so forth. But the only vectors of value for your organization with data is richer, better customer experiences and better ways to engage your employees. And so you really need to think about these two vectors as you measure the value of your data for your organization. Completely agree with you. So with these three points, the openness to architecture, community, and ecosystem, I'm just curious to know, Everything here, we use the word data, what, like a billion times so far? What about the governance of this? I mean, clearly, this is more ways of creating data, using data, and acting upon it, and personalizing results, right? What happens to governance for this future state? Data governance, that is. It is a extremely complicated problem to solve. Most organizations today, I think I was quoting earlier a quote from the Boston Consulting Group, 60% of leaders rate their data governance capabilities at various levels of under development. So this idea of managing data at scale is probably the number one problem of the enterprise. And, and where does it come from? It comes from the fact that today data is siloed across your own data lakes, data marts, data warehousing. You have data on-prem, you have data in the cloud. And so how do you understand this data, apply policy across it and, and so forth? And so it's an extremely complicated uh, issue to solve. There are a lot of solutions out there, but I think what people have found is that they end up building their homegrown uh, you know, process and systems. And the minute the data changes, well, these systems become obsolete. And so I will say that, you know, the advice that we give the chief data officers that we work with, and you know, this is based on the lessons we learned from the best in the industry, is that day one, you need to start your data governance. You need to hire someone to be working on data fabric. We're starting to see now people in organizations under the chief data officer hiring people who are VP of data fabric because this problem of data governance is really not being resolved. And today it's extremely manual and it's taking people away from 
the business initiatives that their company should be driving and they just can't do it because they don't know where the data is. They don't know how this data is being used and it prevents them from actually getting value from, from the data. So while we're getting better at storing more data, we're I've not caught up with the ability of cataloging and acting on this data in ways that is safe and secure. And so huge potential here for organizations and then certainly number one problem to having culture around data, because if you can't trust the data, then you're probably not going to respect it. And if you can't respect it, you're probably not going to have a data culture. You hit the nail in the head. Let's come back to that culture point. But before I get there, from a data governance perspective, and this is what I'm hearing from the executives that I talk to as well. Essentially, let's be honest, data governance has been in existence for a very, 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 very long time. The challenge was it used to be very bureaucratic, like who is who in the organization, who owns data governance. And then this chief data officer role started a little while ago, and it basically pivoted the focus. It said, stop arguing about who owns data and start thinking about how do we use the data. So I think you mentioned this just a little while ago, centralizing data and decentralizing analytics, which means don't worry about whether data is created in the edge or legacy systems or, you know, large or systems like data warehouse. Worry about how do I use it? What data do I need? How do I use it for? And how do I track the business outcome? right? Measure it so that you can continuously improve your business process. So you're saying keep it agile, keep it nimble, but constantly focus on what data we need, how do we use it, and how do we make value out of it? Is that right? Yeah, invest in intelligence early for data governance. You know, I think you described the problem really well, which is data governance has been in existence in the world where we were primarily working on small data that was primarily stored in one or two places. Now we're working with large data that's stored everywhere, some places you actually don't control. And so that's creating one level of complexity. The second level of complexity is now your end users, they don't want to wait two days to get access to the data. They want to get the data the minute, the second it's actually hits your application. And so as someone managing data infrastructure, you are having a hard time managing that. So, so that's why starting with what's my vision for my data fabric? What's my vision for my data governance project is really important. I mean, you look at some of the state of the industry today, 86% of analysts still struggle with data that's out of date because it takes so much toll on the organization today to get the data out to the end user that actually can act on it. The majority of it does not happen. 90% of employees say that their job is slowed because of unreliable data sources. So when you have poor data governance, when you have no data fabric strategy, you run into really top issues your organization is trying to, you know, to build is trust in our system, trust in our data so we can be data driven. I mean, just another stat of the consequence is that it prevents you from innovating. 80%, 80% of the analytics work in the industry today is still descriptive. So while we're here talking about, you know, let's use artificial intelligence, let's use prediction and so forth, you got to remember that it's, it's a small percentage of the industry that's able to do it. And I think it starts at the source, which is, well, do you trust your data in the first place? Is it delivered in real time to your end users who effectively should be making decision on it? And I think the answer to that is, is we're not there and the pace of data creation is accelerating. It's a very complicated story to solve it immediately. That's why I'm, I'm saying if you're joining a company today as chief data officer or CIO, that's what I would take on day one. What's your data governance, data fabric strategy? And that's the key to getting data democratization and, and building trust. And I think you mentioned this, Bruno. AI to you basically means applied and invisible. 
And that basically means you're now making sure that AI is not this big thing that is constantly talked about. Use it for a particular business outcome, but then embed it into your application so it becomes a feature, not just a standalone monument that nobody's going to use. That's right. You know, there is a lot of hype, of course, in the market. You know, I think you see it on TV shows now, you know, and people are getting scared. You know, what is AI? What does AI look like? Where do I buy me some AI? And so, so there's a lot of marketing for AI. Yeah, or urban mythology around what AI is. But the reality is, if you look at the organizations that are using AI effectively, they really do follow what you just said. You know, I joke that AI stands for artificial and intelligence, but really put to work, it stands for applied and invisible. You know that you're using artificial intelligence when you actually don't see it. And when it's actually applied to your specific use case, you know, when you pick up your phone and you ask it, hey, you know, when does the sun set tonight? Well, that's artificial intelligence because it's got to transfer now your voice into a query that can hit a service and get back to you via voice into an answer. That's artificial intelligence. When you are opening Spotify and then you're getting a bunch of recommendations, that's artificial intelligence. That's lookalike analysis. When you are using your credit card and it's flagged because that's real-time fraud detection, that's artificial intelligence. So all these are in around our lives today and they're very applied to what we do. You know, there isn't really a lot of reasons to be scared about it. We just have, as technologists, we have to make sure that we understand what does it mean to have AI infused in my business processes? What are the things that I can do that can make the work of my people a lot more effective? You know, data preparation is a great example. You know, today, 70% of the time that people spend with data is preparing the data, detecting errors in the data and completeness in the data. Okay, that's a great example where artificial intelligence should be used because that's not value added. And when you're doing that, you're preventing your people from innovating. And so that's kind of how we think about artificial intelligence. It's not something that you buy, it's something that you apply. Right. No, absolutely. That makes sense. By the way, data scientists spend about 80% of their time just doing engineering stuff. Can I get to the right data? Can I ETL it and put it into my model? And half of the time they're building cleansing rules instead of had they had the right kind of data at their hands, they would rather focus on inside generation than actually doing engineering tasks, right? That's right. I mean, and even another quick example in the world of analysis, right? So artificial intelligence can actually push answers to you before you ask for those questions. You I mean, one of the issues with performance today in query, right? Often we say, oh, you know, my end users don't wait for the data to refresh and, and they move on to the next problem. That is a problem. But the, the bigger problem behind it is that when it takes forever to get your answer, you forget what your question was in the first place. And so the ability to use, you know, techniques that actually push the answers a lot faster to you enables you to innovate a lot faster. Natural language querying is what you're talking about, right? That's right. There's hundreds of examples where artificial intelligence is applied and infused in ways that you know can really make our life better and, and enable us to make better decisions, more informed decisions. No, absolutely. Now, I haven't forgotten about culture. So with so much technology and data explosion, Bruno, what do you advise? Now, you talk to a lot of CDOs. I do as well. But essentially, people keep talking about this utopia of data-driven culture. What does that mean? How do people get there? How can they truly become data-driven? It's a tough question because, you know, it's more than a marketing term, you know. So wrote a book about 10 years ago uh, called Drive Business Performance. And the big, the central question was, why is it that these organizations are able to have a sustained advantage over others? 
And what I ended up with is that culture is the only sustainable advantage that allows you because it's rooted in who you are and what you believe in. And so what we found as part of that research, and, and it's confirmed every day here that I talk to customers, is that data culture is not just doing training and having technology that's more approachable. Those, of course, are really important. And, you know, everybody's kind of trying to solve that problem. Data culture starts at the top. And it starts with CEO, a COO who is committed and, you know, I, I hate to use this term of mandate, but it's not an optional thing to bring data and insights to your meetings. We will not make decisions based on opinion and the rank of the person in the room is not what's determining what the best opinion is. It's the data that does. Now, of course, to be able to do this and be backed up with trust you have to have a, an infrastructure that allows for that data to be respected that just kind of connects to the governance piece. But there's even more than that. It's also how you decide to organize your teams. So last week, I put a survey on my LinkedIn profile. I asked how many people should you have in your organization that are data people? And I did this intentionally because you know we work with organizations sometimes 25% of their organization are data engineers. And so I got some really interesting answers, you know, people helping in breaking up, okay, what does it mean to be a data person? If I think about my data engineer, my data scientist, my data analyst, are they data people? Are my business users data people and so forth? And so we haven't cracked that nut just yet, is how do you organize yourself so your organization can truly take advantage of data? What is the appropriate ratio of data engineers to data scientists, data scientists to business analysts, business analysts to information workers? That, I think, as a chief data officer, you know, like I said earlier, I talked about governance. That's from a technology standpoint, from a human relationship standpoint or human resources standpoint. I would look at that. I would look at your resources, the titles they have, the initiatives they're aligned to, and you'll get a quick answer on are you data-driven or not. You know, the consensus here in the industry, I think it was someone that's a data engineer at GitLab said, you know, the best organizations have anywhere between 8 to 10% of their people are data people. Ask yourself at your organization, what is that percentage today and what should it be? You can't just go around and say, you know, we need to build a data culture and it's, it's a bunch of posters and walls. You actually have to change the fabric of your organization and the way you organize yourself because that's the only way that change actually occurs. And so that's how I think the companies that build the best data cultures, you look at their org chart and it does reflect it. And by doing so, because of the organizational footprint of the organization, that's how they maintain a competitive advantage for so many years because they built the organization that way. So the one interesting point that you said, which both concerns me and excites me at the same time, is that this definition of data people, I mean, wouldn't you think that everybody in the organization uses data one way or the other? Maybe they are data savvy versus data literate. Why would there be a specific type of people called the data people? Because I think you have to think about the multiple layers of who does what with data, essentially, right? So I'll give you an example. Let's say that tomorrow, 25% of your organizations are purely data engineers. What does that mean? Does that mean that as an organization, I have no plans for people that are business analysts and I'm not believing in self-service? Everything's got to go through the data engineers. So I think... To some extent, I think your, your comment is correct, which is everyone in the organization should make decisions based on data. But we also have to be careful that not everyone's job is a data job. <laughs> you know, a teller at a counter at a financial brand, they're not spending their time analyzing information, yet they need information to make the right decision. So what is the delivery mechanism for them? 
And so now if you think back from that, well, how many of those towers do you have? How many data scientists, business analysts, data engineers do you have to support that model? And quickly you see that, well, if I don't have a way to democratize, you're right, I'm stuck. I have a really smart data engineers and data scientists, but I got no plan for making it consumable to my day-to-day workers. And so that's kind of the mix you have to figure out for your own organization. I got you. So the doctor who is performing a surgery, a retail point of sale person who's billing what you buy, they're not the data people. They are the consumers. There will be an analyst who's sitting behind them, who's serving them with the appropriate data at the right time, at the right level, so they can do their job better, faster, and more efficiently. Is that what you're alluding to? That's right. You know, if I look through the comments that I got, I got some really good uh, insights for people. I mean, we have what, 60,000, 66,000 views on this survey. And like I said, it was just a, a few days ago. And Kirk Bourne just really broke down really well where he said, you know, there's multiple layers. There are people that are data literate, meaning they can recognize, understand, and talk data. There are people that are data fluent, meaning they can analyze. And there's data pros who are now creating value through. So I think that's kind of, I don't know what the right answer is, to be, to be honest, right? But, but I guess the quality of the question almost matters more than the, the answer itself is that, have you asked yourself, what does the footprint of my organization look like? And that, I think, is important foundation for building a data culture. Not just the posters on the wall. Actually, how are people organized inside your organization? How are you planning on turning that data into value through people? And if you don't have a blueprint for that, it's just going to be really hard for you to make, make it happen. Man, Bruno, I really wish that I have another hour to trap you into this podcast so that we can talk about this quite a bit in detail, but I got to wrap up. So thank you so much. Are you ready for a lightning round? I am ready. All right, let's go ahead. What are a couple of your few favorite books and podcasts, not the ones you wrote, the ones you read and the ones you like? So podcasts, you know, there's two podcasts that I religiously listen to every morning. One is The Economist. They have a daily espresso. It's three minutes. And so I listen to that while I walk my dog. And I also listen to TechCrunch uh, primarily because of tech news and I'm, I'm interested in what's going on. I have stopped looking or listening to political podcasts or news podcasts. And so I'm not the best source for a recommendation there. I just found that it depresses me more than it helps me. As a result, I might not be the the best person to talk to about the latest developments uh, that are not in my industry, but both The Economist and TechCrunch keep me uh, up to date. A book that I'm reading right now that I'm really loving is a book called Framers. It was uh, written as a few authors, but one of them, Ken Kukier, is, is a friend of mine. He was the data editor at The Economist when that front page article landed called The Data Deluge. I've read that. Enjoyed it a lot. It was great because, you know, at the time I felt like it was the revenge of the nerds for for me is that, you know, at the time nobody really cared about talking about data analytics as much as I did. And when I picked up that, I was the subscriber of The Economist, when I picked up that magazine, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to really open up uh, the door for a lot of people. And it did. And so I've had the opportunity to work a couple of times with Ken and, and his book just published. So he sent me a preview copy and the book's just awesome. And it's awesome because it is talking about the human advantage in the world that's becoming, you know, more artificial intelligence is being put to use. And so it's a great book. He's a great writer. Uh, he's got two co-authors that are great as well. So that's the book I would highly recommend, Framers. That is fantastic. Okay, so... I hope it's almost over. There are parts of the world that are still going through the COVID lockdown. But what did you do, personally speaking, during the COVID time? Did you learn something new? Did you do something new? What was exciting for you? 
Well, I think I drove my family uh, crazy because before lockdown, I was traveling, you know, 70%, 60% of the time. In fact, right before lockdown, I had just toured the world, coming back from London and Australia. We just made this gigantic launch and announces. And so I came back home, I think, just beginning of March. And then two weeks later, everything is locked down. So not being able to travel has been really a problem. But the thing that I've learned is that, in fact, having these digital ways of talking with each other, and particularly, I mean, we're lucky in, in the industry I work in, our meetings haven't changed as much. It's now kind of a great equalizer because in the past, you know, if you were not at corporate and you're joining a call, you were kind of not as present in the meeting. Yeah. Now with video call and everything else, you have to be engaged. You have to be present. Yep. And so that I think has been kind of a, a great lesson. I've also been able to meet more customers a lot easier because now I can you know, distance is no longer a part of the equation. You know, in the past, you used to plan, you know, customer tours where, okay, I'm going to travel 10 hours to see 10 customers. Now I talk to 10 times the amount of customers because just get on the quick GVC and then they don't see it as a problem that I'm calling from my house and they're calling from their house. So I think it's open opportunities like that. I have a dog now, which I did not have before lockdown. It's kind of interesting. I did not get him because of COVID. And we happened to make the decision in December. And so when he got home, it was in the January, February timeframe. So it was great timing. And so I've discovered that I love dogs. I never grew up with a dog. So that's changed me a little bit. And so I would advise anyone to, it's a small cockapoo, so it's a small dog. But I would tell people, dogs are great have a breakfast on my porch with the dog in the morning in the sun. And it's, it's a great moment and same thing in the evening. So it's a great purchase. Fantastic. What's next for you? Well, what's next for me, I would say is that, you know, looking at some of the trends that we discussed, one thing that I would love for people to think about is what's the future of data and analytics. And, and for me is thinking that the interface to data is you. I don't know if you remember when Microsoft shipped this device called Kinect. It was basically this camera that would detect movement and would kind of make the gaming experience available to non-gamers. And I think, you know, if you're a chief data officer today, I would start looking at those trends. Look at natural language processing and any trend that is making data more available to folks who are not professionals, data pros like we are. And so I'm going to be spending a good amount of time looking at that. We have lots of customers innovating there. Again, great use case for artificial intelligence, image recognition and, and interpretation of gestures and things like that. And so that's what I'm going to be looking at more. And then, and then of course, writing about and hopefully sharing some insights that people will find helpful. That is fantastic. Bruno, it's been an honor to have you in my show. Before we wrap up, do you want to say anything else other than what you've already said to the executives and the folks, the data guys who are listening to the show? Well, thanks for having me. It's been a ton of fun chatting with you here. I do feel like we could talk forever. I will tell people, don't hesitate to reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's where I spend uh, most of my networking activities. I don't spend a ton of time on Twitter or YouTube or any of that. It's really just kind of use LinkedIn as kind of my inbox and my way to connect and learn from the community. So feel free to invite me there. Like I said earlier, every Sunday night, I share the top five AI data analytics posts of the week. And so if you have something you want me to feature, don't hesitate to reach out and let me know, hey, there's this cool article I learned X, Y, and Z from it. And so what I'll do is during my eight minute video, I'll point to your resource because the whole point of that update is to share as a community. So I'd say find me on LinkedIn and uh, let's connect and hopefully learn from each other. Sounds fantastic. And for my listeners, we will make sure we put it in the show notes as well. Bruno, thank you again for being in my show. Appreciate the insights you've provided. Thank you so much for having me and we'll talk to you soon. 
Thanks for tuning in to Intelligent Data with Arvind Morali. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. You can find this season along with show notes at Perficient.com or listen to this series on top podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, or Amazon.